Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Emily. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, for today's episode, we have to have a trigger warning. It is about issues dealing with sexual assault, um, sexual harassment. So if that's something that is tough for you, just know that that is what today's episode is about. Today, we're going to be talking about the viral campaign, Me Too. If you have Facebook or social media, you've probably seen people in your life posting Me Too. This viral campaign actually came as a response to Harvey Weinstein, who is this very, very powerful Hollywood producer and filmmaker. These bombshell, bombshell, bombshell allegations that came out that he has been sexually harassing and sexually assaulting women in Hollywood for many, many years, and that a culture of silence, a culture of looking the other way, a culture of fear, a culture of intimidation really allowed for a sexual abuser to fester in this industry. And it took a lot of women standing up to have anything be done about it and even have a national conversation about it, despite the fact that it seems like it's been an open secret in Hollywood for quite a while. It really does seem like a watershed moment in this conversation. I feel like the Access Hollywood bus conversation by our commander-in-chief was the match that lit a lot of this fire across the United States, in particular around the everyday commonplace rape culture that we live in. And now this sort of movement, this energy, this frustration, this totally righteous anger is manifesting in this interestingly targeted way. So I look back at that tape and I think... How did this guy become our president? I don't know. I thought that was the end. Oh, my God. I I was so naive to think people cared. But I do think you're right. I think the fact, I think for a lot of women, femmes, gender nonconforming folks, many of us have gone through sexual assault, sexual harassment. If you look at the numbers, it's a pretty common thing. And so I think you're right in that going through the, the process of watching that tape, having Trump become president, that kind of lit this anger that had been bubbling under the surface for so long, where all of us are like, no more. We're on alert. Yeah. Yeah. No more. Like, no more sexual predators 
achieving success in this economy. There is no way that I think this is where I always go back to like capitalism can be good. And I really want to see people who are predators, who are criminal in their use of power, coercion, sexual assault, rape, that they are not allowed to succeed. That should be a deal breaker in terms of getting a job, getting a promotion, running companies, being successful. Like, let's make that not possible anymore. And even beyond that, for me, it's not just make sure they're not successful. We shouldn't get them on a stage and applaud them. I think that's what bugs me so much about things like that. Your Woody Allens of the world. Not only do I want to see them have massive, massive failures (laughs) on a a grand public scale, (laughs) when I see them get trotted up on an Oscar stage and like a standing ovation, that's the thing. They should be shamed and voted off the island. What are we doing that we allow these abusers to not just get financial and professional success, but then we uplift them like, oh, they're so great. What are we doing? I don't know. I just think it's a weird distinction that people can somehow, and it it kind of is like problematic faves in that you can hold someone's body of work separate from the way that they conduct themselves personally. But A, we shouldn't be able to look the other way when we're talking about serial predators who commit assault, sexual assault, any assault, really. And B... Now we're talking about sexual assault at work. So now this isn't just some dark secret sweep under the rug. We're talking about people who are a threat to women in their offices, who are a threat to women and men in many cases by using their professional power as a vehicle for control in a sexual domain. Well, that's one of the things I think is sort of glossed over in the Harvey Weinstein situation is that because we're talking about famous A-list actresses, it can seem like this is this like this Hollywood thing. But at the end of the day, these are women in the workplace. And that even though they're famous, they're on TV, they're A-list, they're in magazines, it is a sexual assault and harassment in the workplace situation. And yeah. I think that that can get lost when you're talking about like glittery A-listers. And we sometimes overestimate the power of glittery A-listers as compared to the behind-the-scenes people who make decisions about what roles they're going to get. So yeah, you look at these beautiful, successful, flashy A-listers and you think, they're so powerful. How could this happen to them? Like, Surely people like Gwyneth Paltrow, this wouldn't be happening to her. But you think about it, you know, when it comes to acting, these people were a lot of times just sort of getting their start and just kind of working up the ranks of Hollywood. And so they actually maybe didn't have that much power. Also, it just goes to remind you that it doesn't matter how successful you are. You're still just a piece of ass to somebody. <sighs> and the most recent everyday assault that I experienced which I don't even want to go into details because I'm not into the Me Too kind of assault sharing culture so much, which we're going to talk about more. But it was just like a an everyday stranger assaulting me, basically groping me in public. Um, reminded me that like, yeah, I'm a boss. Like I am, I own my own company. I feel on top of the world right now. I'm like having a great day. I'm going through the world, minding my own business. And I am still dehumanized by someone else. It does not matter how successful you are. That is what assault reminds you of is that you are nothing. It makes you feel like it doesn't matter how much brilliance or gusto or power you feel like you have, you're still just a piece of ass to somebody. And I'm horrified that that happened, but the framing that you just gave, I think, is so important because I think as women, we are taught that it's good to be a strong, badass woman, you know, no one's going to mess with me, blah, blah, blah. But we are still susceptible, right? People look at women who project as very strong, as very assertive, the kind of woman who would, you know, punch you if you did something wrong. And those women are still being assaulted. So it really doesn't matter 
what kind of woman you are, what kind of person you are. Sexual harassment and sexual assault happens to all of us. And it happens in so many industries beyond the entertainment industry, too. Although the entertainment industry is uniquely poised for this kind of thing because beauty and sexuality and sensuality are such a form of currency for actors, really, given the nature of their work. But you've seen this firsthand in the world of progressive politics, right? I have seen this firsthand. Um, and so, again... The thing that really throws me about the situation that I experienced firsthand is that you would think that progressive politics, you know, these are male feminists, these are lefties, these are people that you can really trust. That is definitely how I entered the world of progressive politics thinking, and I quickly realized that that is not the case. And so a few years ago, I had this job at a consulting firm called Fitzgibbon Media here in D.C. We also had offices in California and New York. We were this bustling progressive firm. We worked with folks like um, Ultraviolet. Um, we worked with folks like Move On. Basically, it was a who's who of power players on the progressive left, right? So big lefty organizations. And our firm's founder, Trevor Fitzgibbon, ended up shuttering the firm under many, many, many allegations of systematic sexual harassment and assault by both coworkers and clients. And so how this played out for us is that we went to a, a retreat in Austin, Texas. We were a remote office, so we had people who worked from home, worked from different cities. But this is one of the first times we were all together physically in one in one room. And people started sharing stories. And so one person would be like, oh, well, I got this text or, oh, this happened to me. And before you know it, Everyone has a story. And so it really was one of those things that snowballed where we all came in thinking, oh, this was a one-off thing or this weird thing happened with me and then realized, oh, my God, this is a systematic thing. It's happening to multiple people. And really what you're talking about is unwanted sexual advances from Fitzgibbon, the, the founding partner. Correct. And the people comparing notes and sharing stories were all the women in the office. Correct. Okay, so this is like, oh, maybe he just invited me to his hotel late at night because he was, like, having a weird night and maybe, you know, maybe it was just me, something you can look past, and then you start to compare notes and realize, oh, this is a thing. Like, these advances, these unwanted assaults in some cases, um, and granted, these are accusations as they currently stand, right? But your office, like you've said in the past, gossip became a very powerful tool for understanding that you were not alone in experiencing this kind of weirdness from your boss. Yeah, and I think what is so fascinating to me about the situation is the way that none of us in that office were famous, right? Like, none of us were Hollywood A-listers. But the way that the Weinstein case really mirrored what happened with my progressive firm. And so... How so? Things like it just being an, an invite that you're like, oh, well, that was unusual. So one of the things that a lot of the women who made accusations against Harvey Weinstein pointed out is that it often started with meeting for drinks or an invitation to go to a film screening one-on-one, -on -one, that kind of thing. And Trevor Fitzgibbon definitely did that same kind of thing, where it's an invitation for something that seems intimate, that gives you pause, but doesn't necessarily strike you as this person is trying to sexually assault me, right? Right. Well, in Weinstein's case, they would show up and it, he would be like in a bathroom in a hotel room. So it would eventually would get to that. Right. But, so like Lupita Nyong'o actually, right, when Weinstein first came into her orbit, she was still a student and it often... You know, early on was dinners, invitations to see movies, and how he did these specific things to make her feel like it was safe. So it would be like, oh, 
come to this movie screening. You can bring a friend if you want or an invitation to dinner. And when they get to dinner, there's a female assistant there. But then that assistant leaves. And so it's done in a way where, you know, it seems off, but it's not necessarily, at least (sighs) to start with, overt enough to be like, this is bad. Okay, this is what I hate because, A, I think that one-on-one meetings are critical for everyone's career success plain and simple. B, I've been on many of these kind of hangouts with your mentor, and then you're like, oh God, is he going to hit on me? Have you ever is had this- a one-on-one oh, yeah. where, you, where you bring your resume and it's a date? Yeah. I remember distinctly knowing that I was in trouble when this guy who was a senior consultant on a campaign, and I was like the young intern on the campaign, took me out to dinner. I thought we were going to talk about work and career stuff, and he made a point of showing me that it was a $400 bottle of wine that he just ordered for us to to have, and I was like, I am in trouble. I am officially in trouble. This man now feels entitled to something in return for his return on that investment. And I knew it then, and I predicted the oncoming assault that would follow in his car. You know, like, I don't want to tell people you can't have these meetings, right? That's Pence's strategy, right? Like, no closed-door meetings without mother there. <laughs> you know mother. what I mean? Like, we can't not be able to have these meetings. And yet... This is the tactic that people who are trying to assault others use and rely on our trust of people to not be evil. That's exactly what the case was in my situation working at Fitzgibbon and also with Harvey Weinstein. And so the ways in which predators use these things that we all understand as parts of having a job, one-on-one meetings, getting drinks, things like that, using those things to prey on people who are vulnerable and that you're in a position of power over. One of the things I found so fascinating about Gwyneth Paltrow's story that really, really mirrored my own is that when Harvey Weinstein made an advance on her, she talks about how stunned she was. She says, I thought you were my Uncle Harvey, she recalled thinking, explaining that she had seen him as a mentor. And for me, what struck me from that anecdote is this idea that predators... They work by making you feel special or seen or chosen, right? Like when my boss suggested that we meet at his hotel room for a drink, part of me was like, I should just be happy that he sees me and that he, you know, I thought he wanted to do that because he thought I was successful or talented or whatever. Like it's a way of making you feel special and chosen and that that can be used later on to get you to do something you don't want to do. And did you ever meet up with him? Uh, well, funny story. So... (laughs) How, or not funny, but. I feel like you've told me the story before. Go on. So, what went down in our case was that anyone who knew me at the time before I got hired at Fitzgibbon knew that I needed a job, right? Like, I was a girl who was miserable at her job and, like, was telling everybody, get me out of here. I'm so miserable. So, he sent me a couple of Facebook DMs, was like, hey, I'm in New York. Do you want to come get a drink at my hotel? That kind of thing. Yeah. And at the time, I was like, well, drink at a hotel. This seems a little bit off. But then again, it's progressive politics. We're pretty, we can be pretty casual. So I ended up declining, but only because I lived in Brooklyn and he was, he was in Manhattan. And I was like, well, I'm, not, I'm not getting that out of That was deal breaker for you. I remember you saying like, that to me. Like, I'm, ah. not, I'm not making a, a complicated subway transfer here. So I was like, no thanks. So then later, when I ended up getting my job at Fitzgibbon, around Thanksgiving, I lived in Richmond and he actually lived in Richmond too. And so he invited me. He was like, oh, we should get a drink while we're both in Richmond. And I was like, cool. Oh, yeah. I ended up showing up with my boyfriend and my brother. And so I'm sure he was like, well, (laughs) thwarted. (laughs) Touche. Yeah. I I, I mean, I happened to be, I mean, this was all just happenstance. I certainly, looking back, I wish I had the foresight to, but at the time. Didn't he like rage quit that drink too? Yeah. He basically was like, well, Bye. Yeah. 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 I'll pay for the next round. Bye. But yeah, I mean, part of me 
looking back, it seems so obvious, but I think that is what this is about, right? right? Like when you're when it's happening, you tell yourself, "Oh, like this is fine," or maybe this is a little unusual, but maybe he's just idiosyncratic, well, right? Well, you've got—I mean, the benefit of the doubt. I'm not opposed to it. You know what I mean? Because I have benefited greatly from male mentors in my life, and I always tell women if we are only mentoring other women, or if women are only being mentored by other women, we're going to perpetuate gender wage gaps and gender-based discrimination that's not good for us, right? Diversity and mentoring people who don't exactly resemble your entire life's experience is important. And so people like Harvey Weinstein and Trevor Fitzgibbon give these decent men such a bad name and I hope it doesn't prevent us from meeting up for drinks with people who are powerful and can actually have influence over our careers. But it's a shame because there are predators out there, too. It's like, what the hell are you supposed to do? So it's almost like a double-edged sword where you don't want to feel like you're going to miss out on some sort of career opportunity that you should be able to have access to. But because you're a woman, you feel this extra added layer of concern about it because men are creepy. Right. And that's why we need all the non-creepy men out there and women to actually call this stuff out, right? Because it's the silence, it's the culture of complicity that keeps predators like Fitzgibbon and Weinstein rising to the top. Like, it, it, it allows them to remain powerful and influential in a world that they should not be able to be. So really, a notable thing I think that you see in situations, both with things like Bill Cosby and with Weinstein, is that you have this culture where a team of assistants and drivers and handlers and PR people all know the drill and they all function to allow this predator to operate. And so it's assistants showing up for drinks and then knowing that they're supposed to leave after a certain amount of time, leave, you know, a yeah. woman alone with him. Or it's drivers who are looking the other way while there's a woman drugged in his backseat while he's driving her home. It's things like this. Mm. It's a culture where everyone knows their role. And it's a machine that allows this predator to continue doing what they do without really facing a lot of consequences. And the other component that's common among so many of these stories is these powerful, influential people have not only this whole team of folks who are complicit in looking the other way, but they also use retaliation as a powerful follow-up to their assaults. So whether it's, you know, threatening to blacklist celebrities like Weinstein did, or if it's planting things in the sort of industry gossip papers about those who dare to speak out, victims are made well aware that the risks of speaking out and reporting someone who's as beloved and famous as some of these criminals are can come with huge risks. And I think that's what keeps so many women silent, including the women at Fitzgibbon, right? Like Definitely. I mean, uh, certainly worrying about retaliation was a big part of what happened at Fitzgibbon. Something I found very interesting about the Weinstein case is that in Lupita's uh, piece for the New York Times, she wrote that after she rebuffed his advances time and time and time again, that there was one incident at a dinner where he said, let's cut to the chase. I think we should finish our meal upstairs. And she was like, no. And that after she left, she was like, I, I felt like I needed to make sure that, I, that everything was good. So I said, Harvey, are we good? And he said, I don't know about your career, but you'll be fine. And that she didn't know if that was a threat or not. And what? And uh, that sounds like a yeah, threat. I don't, yeah, I don't know about your career, but you'll be fine. That's disgusting. Yeah. And, and how... I mean, and this, she, this happened when she was still a drama student at Yale, so she wasn't even... Oh, this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. But, like, what an 
inelegant threat? Like, how obvious are you going to be about this kind of thing? That that kind of coercion is not even something you're ashamed to be that explicit about. Well, according to this New Yorker piece by Ronan Farrow, which if you have not read, is like a bombshell must-read piece, Harvey Weinstein actually had a thing about bragging about getting dirt put in gossip magazines and dissuading of studios from using certain actresses. Like, he talked about how he had this power over Hollywood to make things happen for people or not make things happen for people. And so I think the reason why he was so inelegant is because he's not ashamed of it. I'm, like, being triggered right now because this feels so much like politics. It is. This and is I think, so what campaign life is like. And I think what you said is so important because it's important to, even though, just like you were saying earlier, in Hollywood sex appeal and all of that can be a kind of currency, it's not just Hollywood. It's in so many industries. It's politics. It's medicine. It's law. It's yeah, Silicon Valley. Wall Street. Yeah, if you, if you listen to our Silicon Valley episode, women being afraid to speak up because of retaliation was a hallmark of the abuse and harassment that those women faced. Yeah. And I feel like this is causing me to like just go back in my brain and go back in time, like just thinking about all the men who I've come across who have used their power and influence to get what they want sexually, to get what they want out of the people that they work with and who've been so unafraid to use that power and influence in a retaliatory manner. It's just, it really is like blows your mind how everyday and how relatable it is. And I think that's why the whole Me Too campaign was so compelling because it made you do that. It made you go back through every job you've ever had, every off incident you've ever had, every assault you've ever experienced and be like, this is the experience of being a woman in this country. So we're going to talk a lot more about the Me Too campaign and how it got started after this quick break. And we're back. We were just getting very, very angry thinking about some of the really inappropriate things that I think a lot of us have dealt with and sort of why it's now kind of a watershed moment under the Me Too campaign. If it seemed like everybody on your social media feed was saying Me Too, that's probably because they were. Uh, and that's probably because sexual harassment in the workplace is so common. One in three women report being harassed in the workplace, and one of four say they witnessed a coworker being harassed. And this is data from a 2017 poll that YouGov did, where they surveyed almost 5,000 people. And I think that these numbers really show this is an issue that most of us are dealing with, right? It's very, very common. Either you've dealt with it, someone you know has dealt with it, your friend, your family, whoever. I think it's just this groundswell of voices being like, no, yeah, we've all seen, exactly. we all, like, if you're, like, if you didn't know this was happening, where have you been? And I think I've heard from the men in my life that that was even more eye-opening for them to see all of this Me Too. For me, it was like, obviously, obviously Me Too. I think when Alyssa Milano, after the Weinstein story broke, she called on people on Twitter to use that hashtag Me Too if they'd experienced assault or harassment in the workplace. And according to Intercept, the hashtag Me Too has been tweeted well over a million times in 85 different countries. Basically, Milano was saying maybe if people knew how common this experience was, we'd care a little bit more about it. And that was certainly the experience that I felt. But I, I also saw when everyone was using the hashtag, I had this really weird mix of emotions. I was experiencing sort of like, obviously, duh. Like, if you aren't aware that this is a widespread issue, where have you been? But also exhaustion at the need for us to, again, be sort of trotting out our war stories, our wounds, 
to be like, look, tell me I'm valid. Tell me this is a valid issue. And I don't know. I just I felt very conflicted over the popularity of the hashtag, which, by the way, was initially a movement started by a black activist, Tarana Burke, who back in 2006 on MySpace actually started this Me Too campaign as a grassroots movement to aid sexual assault survivors in underprivileged communities where, quote, according to Ebony, rape crisis centers and sexual assault workers weren't even going. So one thing to note that when she started this campaign, she wasn't thinking that it would be a viral campaign or a hashtag that was short-lived, here today, gone tomorrow. But she says that she's really, really happy to see what's happening now. She says, Mm. what's happening now is powerful, and I salute it and the women who have disclosed. But the power of using Me Too has always been in the fact that it can be a conversation starter or a whole conversation. But it was us talking to us. And so she really started this as a black woman talking to other underprivileged communities. But then she writes on her website that she felt the need to take this conversation further. And so while she started it for underprivileged communities of color, because that's who she worked with, she realized just how prevalent this was and wanted to take that conversation on a more broader level. I wonder if we're losing something in mainstreaming it. You know what I mean? I wonder if we also need to bring a more specific lens to the conversation around women of color. And, you know, we know that certain women get assaulted a lot more than other women. Totally. And I think, you know, we talked about this in our episode for HBCUs. Uh, right. Black women are much less likely to report sexual assault and right. sex crimes. Um, I think the conversation is great, but I, I'm mindful of who it leaves out. Right. So I think right now the conversation seems to be very focused on like white powerful A-list women. Actually, it was Jane Fonda who made this point on MSNBC that, so she says, it's too bad that it's probably because so many of the women that were assaulted by Harvey Weinstein are famous and white and everybody knows them. This has been going on for a long time to black women and other women of color, and it doesn't get out quite the same. And so I think that she's right in that it is an issue for other communities, but that perhaps the, the mainstreaming of the Me Too campaign kind of leave some of those communities out. I also think that we don't, we're not talking about gender non-conforming folks. Right. Uh, trans women get, you know, as we know, trans folks are much more likely to be assaulted than the general public. Right. Um, I was so proud to see Sarah McBride, who is the national press secretary for the human rights campaign, and was actually the first trans person to speak at the Democratic National Convention. So shout out to Sarah. Yes, Sarah. Um, so she wrote a whole piece for BuzzFeed about how when you're trans, Sexual assault and sexual harassment has this added layer because we are told as a society that trans folks are gross, disgusting, and that no one could ever possibly want to assault them. And that the narrative around trans folks is this completely ridiculous stereotype of a trans person waiting to assault somebody in a bathroom, which we know is like not actually happening. Um, So she writes... I stayed silent because I knew that while many survivors are met with disbelief and doubt when they share their stories, trans survivors often also face a different kind of disbelief, one rooted in the perception that trans people are, quote, too disgusting to be assaulted. Alleged rapists and sexual harassers will sometimes insist that they couldn't possibly have done what they've been accused of because the person accusing them is too unattractive to merit being assaulted. We've even heard that defense from our sitting president. Exactly. Our sitting president has said that. It makes me want to scream. It boils my blood. I know. And there's a part of the Me Too campaign that I I think was most effective in its mass consumption, which is it got us all enraged again because of the sheer volume. So whereas we've lost some things in the mainstreaming that we need to reclaim, like a special focus on the experience, the intersectional experience of being a trans woman, of being a woman of color, and how it's not all the same for every woman, 
we've also gained something in the mass participation, which is, A, I think broader awareness of how commonplace this is, but B, I got enraged all over again and depressed, quite frankly, just seeing the onslaught. You know what I mean? It just felt like too much. It felt like... I'm just, I want to, I want to find who all these people are and punch them in the face. You right, know what I mean? I, I'm angry. I think you're exactly right. And I think you actually did see some people saying, Hey, if it takes millions and millions and millions of women saying me too for you to realize this is a problem, what the hell? Right? Like, right. why should we as survivors of sexual trauma, sexual crime, sexual abuse, sexual assault, why should it be on us to split open our traumas for the world to see to get somebody to care, right? This is not the first time that we've had a viral campaign about sexual assaults around women. Like, remember hashtag yes, all women? Right. We've done this before. We've been right. here before. And so I think one of the criticisms I see, and I think is frankly valid, is that if you're the kind of person who needs to see this amount of trauma, this amount of labor on the path of survivors to do something and see it's a problem? Like, what is going on? Exactly, Bridget. And I think it's important to acknowledge that for every case involving sexual assault or harassment at work, there's typically more than one party involved. So for every one of those hashtag me too tweets, you know, where was the other player? Where was the other person in that equation? And that's the spotlight that our pal, Liz Plank, friend of the show. Friend of the show. Shout hey, out to Liz. Liz. Um, she really shed light on a different take, which was this hashtag him, though. Like, what about him, though? What are we going to talk about him, though? And really pointing the microphone in a different direction of saying, okay, we've heard from plenty of survivors. Now, when are we going to hear from men? When are we going to hear from men on this? Yeah, and I think I'm a big fan of not just having the onus being on survivors to do the heavy lifting and unpacking and all of that. But yeah, I almost felt a little bit exasperated seeing so many yes. men saying, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you. First of all, I don't think we're doing this to have men believe us, right? right? I don't give, like, frankly, <laughs> I like... I like what you were about to yeah. say there. I agree completely. <laughs> like, we're not doing this because we want you to believe us. We're doing it because we want you to do something about it, right? right? And so I got a little bit irritated watching so many of my male coworkers and colleagues and friends sort of virtue signaling by being like, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you, but then having an end there. And so I'm not someone who is into just giving validation for a man saying, I believe you. I want you to go further. Make a plan for what you're going to do when you see your homeboy do something out of line. Make a plan for what you're going to do when you see sexual harassment in your workplace. Even if you're an underling, make a plan for it. Tell me what you are going to do to help unpack this. Don't just pat yourself on the back and be like, Hey, right. women, I believe you. Do something about it. That's what I found so interesting about that other hashtag that popped off from this. I did that. Where right. the men actually saying, you know what? It turns out that in college, I actually did make a girl feel uncomfortable. Or it turns out that I was, I did have more power over a woman and I used that to get her to go on a date with me. Or it turns out that I did exaggerate my status or my ability to make something happen for a woman because I wanted to impress her. And that was kind of gross. Like, it's so easy to pat yourself on the back and say, I'm such a great male feminist. I believe you, blah, blah, blah. It's harder to be like, here are the specific ways that I have contributed to a toxic culture wherein sexual harassment and sexual assault is commonplace. Right. And I think 
It's On Us has done a really good job of having that conversation with young men about not only understanding consent, but understanding the responsibility of intervention. When you see something happening that is not okay and not consensual, I think we need to have those conversations among grown-ups in the workplace and making sure assistants are not okay with being the honeypot to set up a meeting like that and making sure drivers are going to speak out because I think power and coercion in the professional domain is so much more tangible because your salary is on the line Mm -hmm. that that sense of power and the risk you face for speaking out is so real that there are these systemic ways in which we are failing people. Sure, we might be able to curb it on the college campus level with Joe Biden giving a hell of a speech about maybe having sex with an unconscious woman isn't consensual, dudes. Like, maybe we should all intervene when we see something like that happening. No which is sort of every every sort of emotion that I've come out of the no Me shit. Too campaign. It all comes back to no Um But, you know, seeing the men in my life on my newsfeed who've said, I've just like the women, just like I was saying to you off air, that this has caused me to go back and review every pseudo-sexual encounter that's ever happened to me in the professional domain or in college or whatever and sort of examine, was that okay? I think there are a lot of men out there who are doing the same, and if there aren't, they should be. And whether or not you're going to tweet about it, maybe just ask yourself, was that okay? And if not, how am I going to do something better? How am I going to be better in Michelle Obama's way? Be better. Be- well, that's yeah. That's the thing. Something that I was really struck by in watching this campaign take over my personal feed was people saying things like, oh, I had a Me Too status earlier about being sexually harassed, and the guy who sexually harassed me liked, liked it. it. And I was like... Yeah. yeah, just like brain explosion. I mean, how do you make... I just, couldn't even make heads... I was like, I can't even make sense of this. The our, The problem is so bad and the bad actors here are so I don't even know what I'm saying like egocentric yeah like, like, I think it's about them it's su- it's we're in such a place when it comes to the conversation around sexual harassment and assault that the people who are often the perpetrators are not even seeing themselves in that light somebody tweeted at us actually just the other day um, and brought this text message exchange to light for us between a sexual assault survivor who had used that status on her Facebook wall to say me too and the person who she was talking about texting her saying hey I'm just I wanted to let you know I'm here if you want to talk about this and she was like you are the last person I want to talk to and he was like you know, I've, I told you that I feel bad about what happened between us. There was no malicious intent. And, you know, it's not fair that we both keep carrying around this psychological baggage. Take uh, a hike. Like, right? Are you kidding me? He was like, you know, we should talk about this and get it off our chest. And she's like, this this is not for you to get any sense of relief from. And like, that's, that's not what I'm here for. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's like people who are survivors are not doing this to make the people who have implemented trauma on others feel better. That's, I mean, that's that's the frustration of this campaign, too. It's I think it's more enraging than empowering for me. And I think there's something worth looking into in that. Like, why? I didn't feel better when I posted no <laughs> me too on my Facebook status. I felt frustrated. I felt like it, it, it was not super empowering, but it was something I felt compelled to not stay silent about. I'm not here to, like glorify assault or like share my wounds. I feel like there's something very perverse about this performance of I want you to know the details of every person who's ever crossed those boundaries with me. That's voyeuristic, you know, at its core. That 
I'm going to share those details with the people who I have intimate relationships in my life as I feel they warrant sharing and no further. You know what I mean? So there's something weird about how I how I left this campaign feeling. I don't think you're alone at all. And actually, um, someone wrote into one of my favorite uh, advice columns, Slate's Dear Prudence, and they wrote in feeling angry and triggered and just really upset by the whole Me Too campaign. So she writes about how this campaign was feeling really triggering for her as a rape survivor. Her boss posted on Facebook about how, quote, proud he was of all the women sharing their stories. Uh And she writes... At the same time, I want to respond. I want to tell people that survivors don't owe them their stories. I don't want people to come away from this display of mutual pain and think that by posting a hashtag, they've done enough. I'm feeling really grossed out by all the men who seem to have never realized this was a thing until now. I understand why people will want to post, but it makes me furious. I just feel like everything I've gone through has been reduced down to a hashtag so it can trend on social media. And so I think you're not alone in feeling like, this is this weird, heavy burden where you're supposed to slit open your wounds for the world to see. Not everybody feels like that's going to be an empowering or helpful thing in their life. And I think that should be respected. Exactly. Not to mention how triggering this could be having multiple people talking about their trauma and their pain. How triggering this could be for someone who is dealing with that kind of thing. I mean, I know that the day that we were talking about Weinstein all day on a loop. I had to I had to leave early because I was just like yeah. I can't stop thinking about this and I it's all I can think about. Yeah. I think we should take a break <laughs> because I'm getting enraged and depressed all over again first of all. But second of all, the good news is that there are things we can do about this, right? That there are good people who are taking action on these issues that we can join forces with. And the hashtag was just the start of the conversation. The hashtag is by no means the end of activist momentum on this. It's just the beginning. And as uh Woody Allen, I believe, came to the defense of Weinstein saying, I hope this doesn't trigger a witch hunt. That is exactly what I'm hoping for. Let's talk more about that after a quick break. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. 
not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. And we're back. We were just getting very righteously <laughs> angry about the, st- the state of sexual assault and sexual harassment that we're dealing with here in this country, which is appalling. Um, we've been talking a lot about Hollywood and, and media, but it's important to point out that in no way is, is sexual assault and sexual harassment just regulated to those fields. And so I've actually been really, really interested to see how this Weinstein case has seemingly opened the doors to other industries having people be called out for their toxic behavior. And so earlier this week, we saw Mark Halpern at NBC have a handful of accusations from women that he worked with at NBC and ABC. Um, Uh, Just to be on the record, that he masturbated in front of an ABC News employee in his office and then violently threw another woman against a restaurant window before attempting to kiss her. So I just want to make sure, like, people know that if those are the kinds of behaviors you hope won't cause you to be the center of a witch hunt, think again. Because I am excited and motivated for this witch hunt. Because this is the kind of BS that we need to call out, and people like that should not be able to get away with that. As Lindy West wrote in the New York Times, (laughs) it is a witch hunt. We're witches, and we're hunting you. Yeah. It's so on point. It's so, so on point. It's like, oh, I just masturbated in front of my Can coworker. Can a guy masturbate in front of a coworker and throw her up against a wall and try to kiss her and not get called God, out anymore? Jeez, what is this, Nazi so, Germany? Such emotional women are overreacting. God. Oh, my God. Um, also, uh, if you listen to our Silicon Valley episode, you know that... Sexual harassment for tech employees is a is a real problem. And so earlier this week, we saw blogger and former Microsoft tech evangelist Robert Scoble get some pretty intense allegations from women saying that he groped them, that he would attack them. And he ended up sort of blaming alcoholism for those for that behavior. Hmm. That's sad and real, but also not an excuse. I mean, I, I don't alcoholism and addiction issues cause a whole host of things in people's right. lives. but I think it can be both like, oh, he has a serious mental health problem. He needs help. And you're going to have to actually like be responsible for your own actions anyway. Exactly. Actually, just yesterday, Kevin Spacey, um, he, it came out that he had made advances to an actor who was just 14 at the time. Yeah. And, you know, people have been, there's been rumors about him for the longest time that he's been kind of a toxic, predatory person. And I think that it just goes to show you that it's not just women. It's, it's oh, this yeah. is a, a prevalent issue for all kinds of folks. Well, and I guess the gay community is up in arms today because his response it was, was sort disgusting. of like, excuse me, I'm gay? Like, I'm going to use that as a shield? Yeah, being a gay man and Oof. making a sexual advance toward a child, those are two different yeah. things. Like, I'm, I'm almost horrified that yeah. he would try to conflate them. Like, that's almost like a, that's a PR strategy that is so sleazy and toxic that I can't even believe that someone told him that was a good idea. That like, oh, I will excuse myself trying to make a sexual advance toward a literal child. 
by saying I'm gay. Yeah. Oof. What? No. Oof. No. 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 Kind of like saying you're a sweet old president too, right? Oh, which president are you kind referring of, to? Kind of like uh, George H. W. Bush, who last week, after it was made clear that he regularly tells dirty jokes and then pinches the bottoms of young women posing in photos next to the former president, his team released a statement saying he's just a sweet old guy who does, in fact, pinch women's bottoms. That's what I found so weird. They're not what? saying he doesn't pinch bottoms. They're saying he does. He does. They he were like, absolutely does cut do him that. a break. That's they his thing. Like, That's his thing. That he's a charming old man who pinches bottoms. And we were all just like, what? Are you kidding me? And that just goes to show you how far we have to go in this conversation. It's not just about me, too. In a world where the perpetrators would like your status. It's... apparently defining what consent is again and again and not just for college boys for former presidents grown ass men like George H.W. Bush knowing that you can't hide behind your sort of senile behavior as being an excuse so as you've been saying Bridget I think it goes to show that this is not relegated to any single industry it is not relegated to people of any single sexual orientation. Um, it has everything to do with power. And it has a lot to do with what's happening at work because when people are using their professional power and influence for a means to coerce you into sexual activity that is non-consensual, then it's especially disgusting. Going off that, something I found really, really maybe telling about how bad of a situation we're in with this is that earlier this month, BuzzFeed put out a call. They wanted to know, who are the Harvey Weinsteins of your industry? So if you're you know, a mathematician, who is the guy that everyone knows is a creep that's just been getting away with it? And I was, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, great. Like, out these creeps. Totally. Like, let's do this. I'm in. That ended up sort of spitting off into what they called the media men list. And this was a crowdsourced Google Doc where it had dozens and dozens of names of men who had done various inappropriate things. And these things, and I should say, it's all allegations. The list makes it very clear that, um, you know, take the list with a grain of salt because it's just anonymous allegations. So, you know, know that going in. Right. But what I found really telling about this list is that it ranges from things like sliding into someone's DMs and being weird to outright, you know, assault or rape, and then things that are not sexual in nature. Like, one of the people who was on the list is a man who, while his inappropriate behavior was not sexual in nature, it was, like, threatening and bullying. And so it was things like intimidating interns and making them feel like if they crossed him in some way, that he would retaliate against them. Well, it's funny, because it sounds like this is a tale as old as time, right? Like, influence, power, wielding that influence and power, it happens every day. It happens every day. And some of it is illegal and some of it's not. Totally. So it is, you know, I I can almost hear the um, the outcry of that group that Trump met with, which we covered in the um, oh, campus sexual with- assault. Oh, DeVos, yeah. that's right. When we were tackling Title IX, the mothers of accused, I'm sorry, falsely accused rapists whose lives have been ruined because some girl regretted a night with their boyfriend, basically. And I can hear those folks lighting up their tiki torches already because... (laughs) Not tiki torches! (laughs) Well, the line between white supremacists and my my son's not a rapist. It's like a mixed bag of, you know... Yeah, I can almost like hear the beads of sweat forming on those folks' brows because if you think about it, the democratization of gossip through the internet can be used powerfully and, some might argue, can be used as a form of 
influence and blacklisting, and it can be used in a retaliatory way, just like we're trying to prevent. Now, I'm not here saying that that's what that list is about, but I get the Woody Allen fear of a witch hunt, and at the same time, I think we need a lot more of that kind of exposure. Well, I actually have often argued that the reason why we are seeing these kinds of watershed moments is exactly because of things like social media. When you look at Cosby's situation... I think that Cosby came from an era where it's old Hollywood, where yes. you could call someone's PR agent and say, hey, this story, can we have it killed? It's really going to be bad for us. And we would never be privy to any of that because those power players are wealthy, connected, and all of that. And so that's happening in rooms where most of us will probably never be. And I think with things like Twitter, it has democratized people's voices. And so people who largely did not have a platform, did not have a voice, can say, hey, like, this happened to me. Hey, this wasn't okay. And a PR person can't call Twitter and say, hey, can you kill this story? That's not how Twitter works. And so it's kind of this reclaiming of power and influence and voice and giving it a sort of a more level playing field where I'll never forget when that story bubbled up again, there was no one to call. There was no PR person that you could call to make everybody stop tweeting about it. It just was. It existed. And I don't think you saw that before. That is such a good point. And I think it just goes to show you that when women especially, but but survivors of assaults across the gender spectrum get together, like, your voice can be powerful. And that's what we saw with Me Too, but Me Too was just the beginning. And so solidarity and a unified front and sort of acknowledging each other's differences and unity is going to be really critical to make this movement an effective campaign for change. I could not agree more. And so we didn't want to end without giving you some resources. If you're finding yourself dealing with sexual assault or sexual harassment in general or in the workplace, here are a couple of resources that you should know that you have at your disposal. Um, one is a great organization that I know and love. is the National Women's Law Center. Their number is 202-588-5180. That's 202-588-5180. And they're really helpful in terms of coming up with legal resources if you want to take legal action against someone who is breaking the law or or treating you in a way that's inappropriate, and you want to know what your legal resources are, they're a great, great, great resource for you. And furthermore, don't forget to check out the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, who we are always giving a little shout out to because our, our little labor organizer blood in us can't can't help but mention how influential they have become. And yes, they are part of the government. So uh, this is us relying on our taxpayer dollars, actually uh, cashing in on some of that investment. You can contact them at 1-800-669-4000. That's 1-800-669-4000. And search their website at eeoc.gov for more. So Sminty listeners, we want to hear from you. This is obviously an issue that many, many, many of us are dealing with. How is it showing up in your life? How did you feel about the Me Too campaign? Was it something that you participated in? Why or why not? How did you feel about it? If you're a dude, did you take part in campaigns like him, though, or I did that? How did that go for you? We really want to hear how these campaigns are showing up uh, in your spaces. Yeah. I also want to hear, where do you want to see this go? Are you down for the witch hunt? You know what I mean? Like, Or are you fearful of this becoming an infringement on equal justice under the law? You know, like, is the power of gossip in the workplace being harnessed productively, or do you fear its accusations run amok? I'm intrigued by how nuanced our path forward really can be, and I'd love to hear from you brilliant listeners on uh, on what action you plan on taking. So get in touch with us on Instagram, we're at Stuff Mom Ever Told You. On Twitter, we're at Mom Stuff Podcast, and we love reading your emails at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.